Okay, thank you. Welcome everyone. It is now seven o'clock and we're starting the planning board meeting of September 11th, 2023. So uh, starting off, roll call staff. <clears throat> yes, oh, excuse me, Pledge of Allegiance first. Oh. Can't we forget that? And <laughs> Commissioner Curtis is gonna be leading us in the pledge. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Um, staff, roll call, please. Certainly. Um, Board Member Teague is absent. Board Member Sahaba? Present. Board Member Ariza? Present. Board Member Cisneros? Present. Board Member Curtis? Here. Board Member Ruiz? Here. And President Hum? Here. We have a quorum. Okay, thank you, staff. Uh, before we start the meeting, there's a couple of things I just wanted to say. First, um, I wanted to really take the opportunity to thank you very much, Board Member Ruiz, for the wonderful job she did in the past year serving as the president, so I hope to follow in her very capable footsteps. And on a more somber note, I wanted to acknowledge that today, September 11th, marks the 22nd anniversary of the horrific uh, World Trade Center bombing. So I wanted to kind of acknowledge that uh, memorable event in history. Can't believe it's 22 years already. Um, now moving on to agenda changes. Any agenda changes at all from staff or board members? No changes? Okay, this is next is the opportunity for non-agenda public comments. So anyone may speak for up to three minute, minutes for any item not on the agenda. Staff, do we have any speakers? Yeah. Yes, we have one uh, speaker, Christopher Buckley. Christopher Buckley with the Alameda Architectural Preservation Society would like to invite all of you, including staff, of course, to our 50th anniversary Alameda Legacy Home Tour this coming Sunday, beginning at 10 a.m., going to 4 p.m. Tickets are available at Franklin Park. You can also get them on our website. The tour this year, we think, is one of the best uh, one of the houses is an Ernest Coxhead. If you know Ernest Coxhead, he designed Boys and Girls um, Club House, which is quite interesting. Um, this one, in my opinion, is even better. The interior is lots of woodwork, including carved Corinthian columns, not painted. Uh, it's very large. It's very hidden. Uh, most people don't know it's there. On the outside, it doesn't look like much. Inside, it's absolutely amazing. That's one of the houses on the tour. We also need docents, so if any of you would like to be a docent, um, you can get in for free. Uh, you would be a docent for only half the tour, and there's also a dinner afterwards at the Elks Club that you would be able to participate in at no, at no charge. <laughs> Thank you. 
Chris, can you just go ahead and repeat the date and where people can go and find more information about the okay, tour? Okay, this coming Sunday, the 17th, I didn't say the date, that's, that's a serious omission. Mm -hmm. This coming Sunday, uh, tickets are available at Franklin Park, but you can also get them online at our website. Okay. Thank you, Thank Chris. You. Okay. Any other non-agenda public comments? Uh, that was it. Okay. Um, moving into the consent calendar, which are the draft minutes for the July 10th meeting and draft minutes for July 24th meeting. Any comments or amendments from staff? Oh, yeah. Board um, yeah, I don't know if it's applicable in this situation, but um, in the past we had like 4A, 4B, just in case like someone was absent and they had to abstain or something. So I, I just want to flag that maybe for staff moving forward, but I'm not sure um, if that's necessary in this situation, but just making that a note of that. Okay, so with that comment, but no amendments to the current minutes? No amendments and um, I, if um, no objections, I'll move to approve. Okay, um, we have board member Cenaris or Vice President Cenaris. Uh, Moving uh, the consent calendar. Do we have a second? I second. Okay, second from board member Ruiz. And um, call for the vote. Um, sure. Uh, board member uh, Saheba? Aye. Board member Ariza? Aye. Board member Cisneros? Aye. Board member Curtis? Aye. Board member Ruiz? Aye. And President Howe? Um, aye. The motion carries. Mr. President. Okay, um, we're moving on to um, the regular, oh, oh, sorry. I, I uh, have a question regarding a point of order. On, on votes of like the approval of the minutes, is it acceptable for us to take a hand vote and just say all in favor, either raise your hands or say aye, or, is it, or do you need a roll call on each vote? An oral vote. You don't need a, an individual roll call vote. Okay. For this. Okay. All Thank right. You. For uh, future meetings, we'll just do a roll call for consent calendar items. Is that all consent up, calendar items? Um, up to you, President Hom. We um, mostly did the individual votes during the when we were telecom uh, doing the virtual meetings. Okay. Um, in person, you could take all your votes with a, an I or a no, just calling. Okay. Okay. Well. Well, generally, you make that the standard practice unless there's an item where there's a preference for a roll call vote on the consent calendar. Okay, that might be pulled off the agenda, for instance. Okay, we'll go into the regular agenda items. So the first item, item 5A, this is a public hearing um, on, uh, on PLN 22-0474 regarding 2212 uh, South Shore Center regarding a parcel map uh, for regarding the South Shore Center. So- President Hom, sorry to interrupt, I need to recuse myself. Okay, sorry, yeah, you did, yeah. So um, noted that uh, board member Ruiz is excusing herself from this item. So with that, can uh, we have the staff report? 
Yes, uh, thank you, uh, President Hum and uh, members of the Planning Board. Uh, my name is David Sablon with the Planning and Building and Transportation Department. I uh, just wanted to give a brief uh, run through of the staff report for this application, which is a, uh, a stated uh, application to uh, subdivide a 40 acre parcel at the South Shore Shopping Center. Um, what you see here is the basic layout uh, as it is now. There's some minor changes, but this is uh, what was approved in 2008 uh, with some major renovations uh, at the South Shore Center. Um, what, what you see here is uh, the parcels owned by the applicant, uh, Merloni Greyer, um, and was also subject to that uh, original approval. Um, this is actually um, three, three separate parcels. Uh, the blue is the subject parcel, and then the yellow are two other parcels. Um, the large parcel to the left is, uh, is actually Ross, and then the, the small parcel to the north of the project site is the shared driveway uh, between Safeway and Wells Fargo. Um, and so this is the, the blue parcel is what's being subdivided. Uh, what's being, uh, the resultant parcels are uh, two basically uh, sub parcels at each corner of the lot. Um, with several pad buildings um, at, the, at the northwest and southeast corner, um, as well as a private driveway um, uh, along the continuation of Whitehall. Um, the, the site zoning is C2PD, and it's also within the community mixed-use combining zone, um, which was just adopted last year by City Council. Um, and so the entire South Shore Shopping, shopping Center site, um, all 53 acres, and so this includes uh, the project site, uh, as well as um, some, other, some other parcels not owned by the, the applicant, um, is uh, it's within the CMU, and so that allows for mixed use, uh, basically residential above the ground floor, and requires uh, maintaining at least 477,000 square feet of ground floor commercial area. And so that's spread out through the entire 53 acres, and so it's not, um, you have to have a certain percentage on any individual lot. So um, this, this parcel map doesn't impact uh, that requirement uh, in the zoning. Um, so just to kind of run down things, um, the, Parcel map retains the necessary easements for reciprocal access, uh, utilities, um, uh, and public access easements. It's consistent with both the C2 and uh, CMU uh, zoning guidelines. And so staff's recommendation is uh, to recommend to city council to approve the parcel map. Um, and so um, the property owner is here to answer any questions, and uh, the engineer is also available uh, online to answer any questions that the planning board may have. Okay, thank you. Uh, would the staff like to provide a presentation? Um, they don't have a presentation, just here to... They're, oh, they're, they're just yeah. here to yeah, answer, answer any questions. questions. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Uh, at this point, uh, before we open up the public hearing, are there any questions, clarifying items that board members would like to ask? Oh, no. Board member Samaras. Oh. Vice yeah, um, uh, I, I'm just curious, uh, what's the motivation for this? Is it more feasible um, the way it would be uh, subdivided um, for like future residential? Um? Baron Karenite with Merlin Geyer Management. Um, what we're essentially doing here is putting these into out parcels. Um, it allows us to manage the property better. So we have a core retail area and then you have uh, these out parcels, which at some point uh, hopefully will be positioned for redevelopment. Um, I don't know necessarily what that redevelopment's going to be at this time, but ultimately it, it segregates them out. Okay. 
Well, thank you. Any other board member questions? Okay. I did, I did have one more yeah. question for the applicant. Um, the, when I look at the existing parcel map, there's currently lots that are defined for like probably the individual buildings located along Otis Drive. Yeah. So all of those parcels are now, they go away. Um, incorporate so into the larger parcels. So how does that affect these existing uses? So the map that's uh, provided is a, uh, that you're referring to is an assessor's parcel map. Mm -hmm. And so um, those uh, buildings are, the outline are set up essentially for tax purposes so that the tenants get separate tax bills. Um, in terms of legal parcels, we have the uh, red outline parcel, which is shaded in blue. There's only one legal parcel um, within that blue area. The rest of those are assessor's parcels. So it's just how the tax bill gets written uh, to the tenants. Okay, so they're not actual um, legal, legal parcels. parcels. Correct. They're just tax parcels. Okay. Correct. Thank you for clarifying. Oh, oh, Board Member Curtis. And for just a, a curiosity, the southeast parcel uh, contains a big five, and how long do those leases run? Um, in the southeast corner, the leasehold uh, control runs into 20, 2026. I don't know the exact month, but it's within the 2026 calendar year. Perfect. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. So at this point, I'll open up the public hearing. Staff, do we have any speakers? Uh, no speakers. No speakers? Okay. Um, okay, going once, going twice. <laughs> I'll close the public hearing at this point and uh, open it up for staff discussion and uh, possibly a motion. I'll make a motion to approve if nobody has any other. I'll second. Okay, board, board member Ariza puts forth the motion, seconded by, sorry, board member Curtis. So, this is a voice vote, right? <laughs> okay. Staff, can yes, you? Yes, uh, all in favor, please say aye. 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 Those opposed, say no. The motion carries. Okay. Thank you. So moving on, the next three items are study session items. So they're not formal actions tonight, but they provide an opportunity for the planning board members to provide comments to staff for this item, which will be coming back to the planning board in the future for an actual recommendation to the city council. So the first item, item, and we have um, board member Ruiz back with us. Great, to address these next items. So uh, agenda item 5B is a study session regarding zoning code amendments for fences. So, um, Staff, Mr. Yes, good Buckley. Evening. Good evening, uh, Steve Buckley, uh, Planning Manager, and I'll be making the presentation tonight on these uh, zoning text amendments. This is a uh, study session, so um, no action is expected tonight, um, no recommendation to council just yet. Um, so we'll be bringing this back based on your feedback and some, some further uh, work by staff. But um, I wanted to get these in front of you just as, um, some of the cleanup work that we're doing after the zoning code amendments that were adopted with the housing element 
Um, you know, there were some loose ends that weren't really part of the housing element, but still needed to be done. And so those are now following on that work program. Um, so tonight I have three items for you. Uh, one is fences, uh, one is non-conforming uses in buildings, and one is reasonable accommodation. The uh, reasonable accommodation is actually uh, more related to the housing element. Um, it was a, a program item in the element uh, to be implemented, but not as part of the initial uh, rezonings, which were more focused on uh, land use development. Um, so um, the fences item will be the first one, and I have uh, some, some topics and uh, some pictures for you. I like pictures and graphics. Um, but basically, uh, then also the non-conforming um, is a little more straightforward and reasonable accommodation even, I think, simpler in terms of the text amendments that we're proposing. Those are all in your packet um, as um, redline and strikeout documents and also available online. So with fences, uh, we have several things um, just going through, um, thinking about urban design and regulation and streamlining, simplifying regulations being a little clearer in our use of words. So one of the other main items here was hedges, and that seems to come up as an item. It's a little tricky to regulate something that grows, um, especially when you put a height limit on it, because then you have to continuously prune it, and maybe you're, you're harming it by doing that, or you know it, it grows out into the sidewalk instead of up where it's supposed to go. So anyway, the hedges are kind of an issue sometimes, and so the proposal here is that we would uh, remove hedges from the definition of what is a fence or a barrier and uh, handle that differently in terms of landscape um, in a, maybe a different section or, you know, but try to really focus on fences as those physical things that we normally think of as fences or walls. Um, also just clarifying some of the definition of see-through materials um, like the lattice and other things that people use to um, kind of have a little bit more permeability in the fences. Um, we're thinking about um, those barriers that are out in front of restaurants and stores where it's sort of a temporary outdoor seating area and maybe it needs to, some of them are still out there even when the restaurant is closed, even permanently closed. Um, and so we're trying to think about ways to maybe write in there that, you know, if the restaurant's closed at night and it's a temporary thing, it could come in. If it's more of a permanent thing, if they're closed for a year, it should come off the sidewalk so that everybody can enjoy the sidewalk again. So we're trying to work in some of that concept. Uh, there's also arbors, you know, the things that are come up that you walk under at a gate or something. Um, right now, those are in the code, but it's a little unclear, so I was trying to add some definition for that. Um, there's the sight triangles that happen at driveways and corners, and again, trying to um, clarify some of the, the sight triangles for pedestrian safety where cars might be coming out and there's people on the sidewalk. Um, looking at some of the materials that are compatible with uh, other existing buildings on the site so that we have, especially in commercial and industrial areas, that we have some compatibility between the fence materials and the building materials. Um, and then um, one of the things I'd like your feedback on is, is height differences. Um, and um, we have different heights in different parts of the lot. 
and um, it may be worth considering changing some of those height limits. So I'll show you some, some illustrations of that. Um, and then we have, finally, uh, chain link fences and barbed wire fences. And we wanna um, get your feedback on how we uh, regulate those and, and where. So I'll, I'll try to make this quick, but uh, we just wanted to give you the, like the laundry list of all the little things that we're trying to clean up. Um, we actually do have design guidelines, which are already here. With the, I don't expect you to read it, but you know we have a whole bullet list of things that we re already require for fence design and how they're incorporated into sites uh, as if they're subject to design review. But a lot of pro projects aren't subject to design review, so we're really talking about those fences that are by right that just go up, um, you know, at a at a house or a business. Um, and similarly, the design guidelines have not just bullets, but whole paragraphs about fences. Um, but you know, this is what we're really talking about. So in the front yards, we've got the low fences. Three feet is a typical limit for the front and uh, street side. Um, and so um, where, it, where it sort of wraps that corner. So you, you've got different kinds of materials and different kinds of design but that's the kind of height limit that we're talking about. Um, the other feature of the white picket fence is that's what we call a see-through fence. So it's got more than 50% um, air, you know, see-through, um, not opaque is how it's worded. Um, and so that's um, also one of the features that we're looking for in some fences. Um, in fact, the, the opaque design isn't, or the, sorry, see-through design isn't required for that lower part, but the see-through design applies to the upper part that you can see on that other uh, brown fence where it has the cross-hatched lattice. Um, another example of how fences are low in the front and then they can step up further back on the lot. So as you, as you leave that front 20 feet, then it steps up. Um, and we're all familiar with how fences work. Um, but these are some local examples. And you know, it, it can be in a variety of materials, typically wood. Um, the, the upper picture here has three kinds of wood. Um, and so, um, and we, we don't really regulate that. Um, but um, you know, as long as it's uh, sturdy enough to stand up, uh, up to seven feet doesn't require a building permit either. Um, and so um, it's more just what people, you know, have on hand or think is attractive. Um, this is another example of that see-through material. Um, the, the one on the left with the lattice work technically doesn't qualify as see-through material because uh, less than 50% is see-through. Um, if you sort of do the math on this kind of lattice, it's more like 25% is see-through and about 75% is actually wood. So um, that's another thing. Maybe in the definition we wanna change that so that that kind of lattice actually satisfies the code because um, I think most people assume it does. Um, the one on the right more than satisfies the see-through requirement. And that also includes the arbor concept of uh, you know, an arch over the, over the gate. Um, which is regulated separately from the fence, given that it's a smaller section and it's, it's more open. 
Um, then we also have the chain link, which often has the slats in it, and it has a function, uh, right? It's screening mechanical equipment, or it's screening a parking lot, separating a parking lot from a park, um, and things like that. So we have provisions for, for chain link where it has slats or where it doesn't have slats, where you actually want the see-through the see function again for security. Um, you might want to see through it but keep people out. And again, here's the barbed wire, um, and it has its own function as well, um, where you have valuable property or uh, a safety hazard that you're trying to you know, keep people out of. So those are all the reasons we have fences, different ideas about fences, and the text is in the attachment to your staff report. Um, I think the final picture I have here for you is that height question. So on the far left, uh, I've labeled this drawing for front, rear, side, and then you've got street side, which is that sort of long side that's also on a corner lot and then a reverse rear. So you've got the rear lot line, but it's actually next to somebody else's front yard. And so we've got these kind of awkward conditions sometimes where fences are, maybe I want the six foot fence, but it's your front yard, you want a three foot fence. And so um, the regulations have to deal with these, these sort of corner conditions. And I wanted to just present to you for your consideration that uh, currently we, we only regulate really kind of the three feet in the front yard, which is shown in green, and the six feet everywhere else. This is for a typical residential neighborhood. And so those are the two kinds of fences we have. And then you can get an extra foot if you use a see-through material. And so, you know, that's not shown here, but that kind of applies everywhere. Um, and one, one thought is maybe the street side to be a little bit lower but than the than the normal fence, but a little bit higher than the front fence, you know, where where you want to have a little bit more pedestrian environment along the along the street. You want to kind of compromise. Um, so that that's one idea. There's lots of other ideas of how you how you regulate these fences, um, and maybe it's fine the way it is. Um, but I just wanted to bring this out as something that we've heard about is kind of these street side fences. Um, where people are kind of like, well, what are you hiding back there? And it's only this much space. You know, why do you need a six-foot fence? Um, so that's my presentation on fences. Um, and I'm open to whatever feedback you have. Um, I, I was thinking this process-wise, since this is a study session, um, unless there are some burning questions that board members have, I thought maybe we would first allow for any public comments and then we'll dive into board questions and comments and discussion. So staff, are there any speakers on this item? Uh, yes, we have one speaker, Chris, Christopher Buckley. Okay. Christopher Buckley with the Alameda Architectural Preservation Society. We sent you a letter last night, which uh, I assume you've taken a look at. And uh, here's some images that we attached to the letter. There were two main comments in the letter. Uh, first, concern the definition of replacing the definition of barrier with fence. And we're recommending that the definition of barrier, that, that word stay, but delete 
the reference to hedges, but would retain the uh, walls. Now, the definition of fence, the proposed definition, also includes walls, but it's kind of buried in there. And we're concerned that a casual reader, a, a fence contractor or a property owner might look at that and saying, oh, we're building a wall, not a fence, so we're not subject to this. So by keeping the term barrier, that would presumably cause the property owner or contractor to give it a second look and say, what's a barrier? And they'll see it includes fences as well as walls. Alternatively, uh, the, the word fence could be fence and walls where it appears to make it even more explicit. That's a little cumbersome. We think that using retaining the word barrier but with the modified definition would be the most efficient way of handling this. Uh, the second comment um, concerns the extra height within front yard areas, and uh, particularly as as, uh, as staff member Buckley indicated that uh, it's normally three feet, but you can go four feet if the entire fence, and that's our read of the current ordinance, the entire fence is see-through, not just the top foot. The proposal is to limit it just to the top foot now. And similarly, uh, you can go five feet if the top, if, if the entire fence is see-through under current rules. The proposal would limit that, the see-through, just at the top two feet and also with approval by the planning director, which would presumably be a purely administrative approval with no public notice. And so here's an example. So we, we think that the transparency provision for see-through should be retained for the entire fence. We're concerned that if it's limited just to the top two, we're gonna start getting a walled-in look. And we see that already with, some, with several fences around town. This is a fence that's five feet tall, the top 28 inches are see-through, and this may not meet the 50% requirement either. This may be a little more dense. We would recommend keeping the 50% requirement. Um, can we have the next image? This is also a five-foot tall fence, but here approximately the top 18 inches is see-through. And next image and final image. This is a four-foot fence uh, with the top 18 inches approximately as see-through. Uh, this, by the way, also violates the city's encroachment ordinance. It's projecting into the sidewalk right of way. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Chris. And I want to acknowledge that we did receive your letter, so thank you. Um, at this point, I know commissioners' hands went up. The first hand I saw was Board Member Curtis. I know there's other speakers also, but we'll start with Board Member Curtis. A couple of questions. First one. You, you said unless it's over eight feet, you need a building permit, right? Uh, seven feet. Seven feet. So if I want to put up a six-foot fence in my yard, do I need any kind of approval? Uh, and, and from a practical standpoint, who's going to enforce the, these regulations? I know that, that the only time in my experience, and I've been in, 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 in development and, and living in this town for a long time, the only time that you have any kind of a... a a, a, a need for the city to come in and arbitrate is when you have a dispute between two late neighbors. And normally, in, in, at least in the residential area, you have two neighbors that will talk to each other and say, we're gonna be putting up a fence, what, what suits both of us? But my question is, more practically, how do we enforce it without a complaint? Right, that you, you are correct that um, most 
enforcement is through uh, complaints, sometimes anonymous complaints, um, but we're obliged to you know, go out and, and take a look and, and investigate when we receive those complaints. Um, fences are a little tricky because um, the state civil code actually also applies and says that fences are a joint obligation and you're supposed to talk to your neighbor, as you said, and work out a cost-sharing agreement if you have an issue with your fences. Um, so, yeah, we often are not really enforcing very much, but but we can't. But we, you know, we see some pretty egregious cases, um, and um, you know, so those are the ones that we that we really look out for, where it's where it's potentially dangerous. You know, it's it's constructed poorly. Um, out of strange materials over the height limit, you know, we have to do something. Got it. Thank you. Any other uh, board member questions? Uh, a board member, Sahiba. Uh, thank you, and thank you for the presentation. Uh, I was just wondering, um, in that last diagram that you had up on the screen, you had shown uh, the highlighting of the of the green, which, yeah, thank you for putting that up. Um, which shows the three feet uh, limitations or, or proposal. Uh, how far back does that green go? Because I uh, was curious what your mm -hmm. thoughts were on that. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's defined as the front yard, and so that's the front property line and 20 feet back. Oh, 20 feet back, okay, yeah. so that's the scale of it. Yeah. Okay, and then uh, is there any um, provisions that you've put within or that you've thought about of how the transition will work for as as the scale changes, the height changes from one to the other. Right. So we had the the picture of some folks who had tried different strategies there. So one of them goes from three to six in a single step. Mm -hmm. Also has more open at the lower level and more solid on the side for privacy. Um, that's probably pretty typical. So are, are there going to be any guidelines placed specifically to help promote different scenarios of transition? Uh, we can certainly look into that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I know the study session, so I just, I'd recommend to think through that because um, even if the guidelines are, so I, I'd associate the guidelines with materiality. Uh, if someone's going to switch materials or stay consistent materials, I think, you know, guidelines could start dictating that transition so it's not as abrupt. Mm -hmm. And then potentially even, um, in, you know, guidelines of uh, when that occurs in relation to, um, I would say, openness of fence mm -hmm. as well. If there's a transition like you're showing in this upper left-hand image mm -hmm. so uh, I think some of those things will will help I think promote a good sort of scenario or, or design thinking around this mm -hmm. thank you yeah I would say you know the, the guidelines are helpful when we have a discretionary permit so when we have a master plan or a development plan or um, certainly in, in more uh, <coughs> commercial areas um, then we have that opportunity to um, turn to the guidelines and point out some some ideas. We are looking at the, you know, the by right fences where we're not issuing permits, we're not doing reviews, we're not enforcing anything. And so we want it to be clear 
you know, at least everybody has a baseline. Okay, Board Member Riza. Um, yes, thank you for the presentation. I just, I guess I'm trying to understand um, the comment about barriers versus fences. Mm -hmm. And I see that y you're omitting the word barriers. Um, is, is that, well, to me it provides certain clarity, but I don't know what your intention is mm -hmm. by omitting barriers and just focusing on fences. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it is definitely semantics. It, if, we, if we call everything a fence but then include walls, then that's one way to do it. If we call everything a barrier and include fences and walls and hedges and everything, that's another way to do it. It, it really is just what does the layman sort of look for? And we thought fence was what everybody's looking for when they do a search of what's the fence height limit. And then if it says fences and walls, you know, it's it's either wood or it's stucco or it's something solid that's a barrier, you know. So the barrier is also a good word. I see. Okay. So in in your intention of using the word fences, a wall that was acting as a fence would also be a fence. Right. 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 Okay. So it's those things along the property line. Got it. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Oh, who came first? I'll, I'll go with Board Member Ruiz. Thank you, Mr. Buckley, for bringing this to our attention. Um, just a few questions for you. One, um, just to clarify, the low fences, the three feet recommendation is for new fences, and if the existing fence that are already taller in the front yard, they are grandfathered as non-conforming structure, and if they need, if there's any further dispute, will the city ask them to remove it, and how, how would that play out? Well, um, they, they would be non-conforming. They may be legally non-conforming if they were built according to a development plan or a prior permit or zoning. They may also be existing but not actually be code conforming today either. So in that case, the non-conforming doesn't really apply where you get to keep it. I mean, we wouldn't, again, we wouldn't drive around and like tell people to saw their fence in half. but. It, it could come up if there were a complaint and we looked at it and we figured out, oh, this was never supposed to be here, then you would have to take it down. But if it was, because let's say if prior to this adaptation, let's mm -hmm. say if we adopt the, mm -hmm. the um, three feet height for the front yard fences, and I know we know plenty of examples around town that people have four high six feet fences in the front yard. Um, Will we then ask them to remove it because now they are non-conformance, regardless whether it was legally constructed? I just don't know if the city is in a position to do that. Mm -hmm. Right, just to be clear, so the current rules are three feet, okay. and the future rules are three feet in this okay. scenario, and we're just sort of looking at fine-tuning some of the, the things like with the, with the open top, um, or um, with the with Which the I side. Said. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for the clarification. Yeah. And sorry, I have a, I have a few oh, questions. And um, the other one is I noticed that um, under the allowance for barbed wire use is when it's um, um, a requirement for public safety or health welfare. 
Um, coincidentally, this weekend I was driving around the industrial side of San Leandro, and I see a lot of um, industrial warehouses where they store valuables, although they didn't have bar wire wires, but they had electric fences. Mm. And it was noted 7,000 volt on the fence sign. And I don't know if the city has a position on that, but I think we should at least address that. That currently is missing. And in terms of um, when someone may use barbed wire, it's, and also is to protect their property because obviously they were storing high valuable like trailer, you know, tractors and things has been stolen. So um, I think we should consider that and revisit that um, definition. And I'm in support of lowering the 50% transparency requirement so that we can have more, I mean, more options in the fully open lattice. Thank you. Director of questions? Uh, board member, I mean, I'll get this right sooner or later. Oh, no uh, Vice President Sonar, yeah. Harris. Yeah. Um, uh, sorry. Um, uh, board member Risa's uh, question. I, I just want to be crystal clear um, that um, your intent was really to remove hedges because of the variant height, like what. Um, uh, Christopher Buckley um, brought up, you know, if we were to say, uh, I don't know, if we were to keep barriers or include fences and walls, that would also meet your same objective. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Yes. As you can see on the picture on the right, I wanted to include this just because it, it shows someone trying to have a three foot and a six foot fence and then all of a sudden they have an eight foot edge. and. You know, what do we do with that? Well, it, it doesn't look like it's really hurting anybody. And it's green, and it's going to go up, and it's going to go down. And so that was kind of the intent, was like, let's, let's leave that alone. Right. Yeah, I have some questions, too, but, and custom comments. Um, mm -hmm. First, just to clarify, um, member of the public mentioned that the it looks the proposal is to change the requirement for the three foot solid rather right now the interpretation is you know if they did take advantage of the one foot the entire fence is supposed to be see-through is that this the staff sees that as a change or is it or has the current interpretation by staff been to still allow three foot solid and one foot yeah no we read it as solid on the lower part and it can extend an additional foot if the additional foot is see-through. Okay. That's our reading. So that's the current. Yeah. And that's and that's the most common of what you see. Okay. Right. Okay. Just wanted to make sure because I think there's a difference of opinion regarding that. Um, let's see. Let's see one question. I guess this is. I refer to the sections. Section F. It, it kind of mentions that a use permit will be required for kind of exceptions or to the case. Um, it doesn't describe who approves the use permit. Is it a planning board item? Is it an administrative use permit? Or that might need to get some clarification. Um, yeah, administrative use permit would be at the uh, zoning administrator level. Okay. So you it, might, would, it you would might, be noticed. Uh, 
Yeah, you might clarify that in the ordinance because sure, it yeah. just says use permit. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and this is a comment. I'm, uh, I know I wanted to mention that board member T couldn't be here tonight, but he did submit some comments. And one of his comments similar to mine is there's a comment about if the fence is adjacent to a building and needs to kind of match the materials, I guess the question, what does adjacent mean? Yeah, so that, that was a carryover. I was, I was trying to incorporate some element from the design guidelines. Maybe it was not the best translation, but um, I was thinking about this comment. So match versus maybe it could be, be compatible with or um, similar to or something like that. Um, but the idea was that, um, yeah, just that, especially in, in commercial settings, we don't want a sort of jarring difference between a sort of a substantial building and a flimsy fence or vice versa, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, I, I see that. I guess my comment is when does a fence become adjacent and when is not mm. adjacent, mm -hmm. you know? So mm -hmm. maybe that's also like a design guideline item similar to in the category what board member Sahiba mentioned of transition of fences, maybe further guidelines on you know, fences that might be a little bit more sensitive from a design standpoint if it seems to be integral or right next to a building or something like that. Mm -hmm. So that could okay. be an item that could be um, addressed. Um, um, I understand uh, removing the term barrier, so, so I guess kind of comment uh, like Board Member Ariza was bringing up, maybe making sure it's clear that a fence includes things like walls, masonry, because some people may think oh, you know, my masonry wall is not a fence, mm -hmm. but under definition of fence, it's meant to include fences, so that could be clarified. Um, but I guess it raises other question that you mentioned, in the, I believe the staff report saying this would exclude hedges or living material, and I understand the reason for that. So given the site distance requirements, is there, if that provision is removed, would, where would the city enforce where a hedge or a plant might be within the required site distance requirement at intersections or driveways? Yeah, I was actually just talking with our transportation staff about that. So just to get clarity in my own mind, I think we're talking about fences having a sort of standard height everywhere according to the rules, and then uh, plant material would still be regulated in those safety zones. So just like um, in say a, a street median, you know, there's a sort of a three foot height limit, then we would try to maintain that as well on street corners and on uh, private property where necessary. Okay, because I think that would be important. So this, we're deleting it from the fence regulations. It should be somehow captured in another part right. of the city's ordinance. Right. Because I, I could see why you want to delete plants, but there's also a site distance issue that could be raised, and I've seen that in many locations. Uh, let's see, my final question, oh, the final was not really a comment. I noticed in section K, there are some requirements about um, surface treatment, like for storage areas, and where the location of storage uh, needs to be located. To me, those provisions are not really part of fences, and it seems like unless they're already stated someplace else, those should be 
incorporated in, in where the regulations are about outdoor storage. So, because they seem to be, you wouldn't logically look under fences for finding those requirements. So that's section K. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. Okay, so those were my comments. Um, any other comments from, oh, board member? I, board member. I have I'm just one more. Board Member Ruiz brought in, brought up the subject of the electrified fence. Mm. An electrified fence, where is that covered? I mean, it, it, it's something that, that is potentially a, a bigger hazard than barbed wire, if you will. So if, if somebody puts up an electrified fence, do they need a permit to do that? And is it regulated in terms of um, the voltage going through? Board the Member fence? Curtis, can you bring the mi your microphone? Oh, closer sure, to sorry. Yeah, no, I, I heard the question. Um, no, no, well, just this mainly for the public. Yes, yes. Um, well, I honestly don't know. I, I don't think it is regulated, except perhaps under some sort of nuisance or hazard rule someplace else. So I think it's definitely something we can consider. Sure, with all the things we talked about, in yeah. my mind, that, that presents the biggest hazard <laughs> of everything that we've talked about tonight. Mm-hmm. Okay, any other comments from board members? Um, did you feel you've recorded and noted all of our comments? When do you think this item might be returned to staff for recommendation? Well, I think it sort of depends on what else comes up on the calendar. I don't wanna um, take up too much of your time if we have other um, you know, more urgent business, but um, probably in the next uh, couple of months. Okay, okay. That's fine. Okay, if, if there's no other comments, we can move on to the next item. And the next item is also a staff presentation, I presume, is item 5C, and this is also a study session on zoning code amendments regarding non-conforming buildings. So, staff. Yes, that would be me again. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, um, Non-conforming uses in buildings. There's a whole section on this in the code, and um, uh, as I mentioned, there's there's a lot of sort of detail to it, and, and I'll just maybe highlight a couple of main things. Um, you know, non-conforming uses and non-conforming buildings are actually two different things, and also non-conforming lots. Sometimes lots are too small or too narrow to meet current codes. So we're trying to be more explicit, but explicit about each of those conditions. Um, so where maybe you know a building meets the setbacks in height, but the use has changed over time and now we've rezoned it and that use is no longer allowed, um, that becomes a non-conforming use, but the building is fine. Um, vice versa, you know, we might have uses that continue on, but we rezone it and now the building's too tall or doesn't have enough parking. And so um, that becomes a non-conforming building, um, but the use is fine. So we're trying to just be clearer about each of those situations and the rules for each, um, because um, you know uses can can probably more easily change over time than the building itself. Um, and so um, that's one of the key key distinctions here. Um, we're also um, allowing. Um, changes with the use permit. So because those uses or buildings have 
you know, investment, you know, and expectations of how they're going to continue in, over time, um, we do want to allow some flexibility and not just say, oh, you have to get rid of everything. You know, as soon as it goes vacant, you know, you're sort of out of luck. And so we want to allow some changes, but we, we're adding a use permit provision so that um, at least there's a, a public consideration of whether um, transitioning from one non-conforming use to another might still be okay or expanding a non-conforming use in special circumstances that maybe we didn't predict, like the zoning is a, a big thing and maybe we missed a certain property like you actually recommended rezoning a property recently because it's been sitting vacant for 20 years because the zoning was actually wrong for that building and that site. And so we were trying to fix it. And so another approach would be to issue use permits. That's a little, a little speedier, a little more flexible um, for those kind of situations. And then um, distinguishing between non-residential and residential uses uh, where um, residential often ends up in, you know, over time, it might get zoned commercial, but it's still residential and we want to allow it to continue in those, in those situations and, and not um, overly regulate it as a non-conforming use. So we've got special provisions for that. And then um, I think the main thing that I'm suggesting that we add is a process for revocation um, where there are situations where we find out, oh, this is really inappropriate. It's causing problems in the neighborhood. Um, somebody maybe um, had a use. It's now been vacant for a while. They're, they're not really showing any interest in make it, making it better. Um, and so this would add a provision that I've used before where it's, there's due process. You know, we give them notice. We say, we're thinking that maybe this should go away. Um, and you have an opportunity to come and be heard, and we can impose conditions on it. For instance, like drive-throughs at fast food restaurants. You know, those those used to be popular. Now maybe they're not so popular um, in the you know sort of um, multimodal transportation system that we're trying to create. And so, uh, if that say goes dark for a certain number of years, this would give us an opportunity to go in and say, actually. We, we want to take this away, and you know it should become something different. And it, and it sort of incentivizes reinvestment in the new thing that we're looking for instead of just hanging on to the old thing. So, so that's the main thing that I think I'm adding to this section. And again, I, I don't have much more. That's, it's, I'm sort of open to your feedback. It's, it's all in you know, sort of a red line strikeout text. Okay, thank you. So this point, um, first, any public comments on this item? Uh, no, no public comments. No public comments? Okay, then at this point, open it up to staff questions and comments and suggestions. Oh, board member, oh gosh, <laughs> Vice President Sanair. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, thank you for the presentation. Um, so with the, um, I'm not sure how to say, revocation suggestion, um, mm -hmm. I'm curious if you have examples of that. Um, I can't think of any right now off the top of my head, but I could imagine maybe 
there could be a use permit for a project that um, maybe requires a very long timeline for infrastructure or you know what have you. So um, yeah, if you have a use case in mind, I'd be interested in hearing about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, our current code has a provision that use permits automatically lapse after two years if they're not implemented and you can request a two-year extension. Um, that's not quite what this is, um, but so um, in terms of those projects that get a use permit but they take a while to launch, you know, they actually have about four years to do that. Um, that might be something else to think about is amending that. We did amend it for design review to be three years. Um, so I don't know if that's something that you would want to consider amending as well for use permits um, to give folks more time to ramp up, um, you know, get the money together, get the plans drawn, get the building permit. Um, but um, that's more of a vesting issue of initially establishing a use or establishing a building um, versus this is more about taking away something that's already been there. Um, and like I said, so I've, I've used it before on a drive-through situation, um, or uh, it also kind of kicks in maybe in things that, that have morphed a little too much, like they said they were going to be a chiropractor, now it's a massage parlor, and now it's shifting into something else, you're not quite sure what it is. Um, you might want to have this opportunity to go in and revisit these permits and um, have a revocation process. Okay, uh, board member Ruiz. Um, thank you, Mr. Buckley. And I have concerns about a specific ordinance that was added in, that is a 30-20.6. Um, and maybe you can help me to understand this a little bit better. The way, way I read it is either because we are kind of lumping the planning permit and building permit together in this paragraph, Mm -hmm. um, and yet we say yet yeah, establish or construction completed before a certain before the day that the ordinances change. So the way I read it that a project can be under construction, but if you're not completed before the ordinance gets changed, then all of a sudden the building becomes nonconformance, you know, or you you need to mm -hmm. You know, something else needs to happen, and I, I, I think I don't think that's the intent. Unless that's the intent, but that's the way I read it. And is that what we're trying to do here? Yeah, thank you for the question. I, I'm pretty sure this is actually copied from another section and moved here um, to make it more flow with the rest of the ordinance revisions. Um, but I can double check that. Yeah. Um, the, the main idea is that um, it, it's recognizing that someone has essentially vested to at least finish what they started. Um, even if, say, they had started under one zoning code and then we rezoned their property to something else, um, you know, we're not going to make them stop and take down what they started. Right, but it, it's, it's not reading what you're, okay. at least it's not clear in my mind, so I would. 
Yeah, well, I think what it's saying then is you can start, you can finish what you started. Maybe. And then, and then if it turns out that we did rezone it and now it's non-conforming, it's acknowledging, well, yes, it is non-conforming, but it can continue. You can continue. Um, but, it, but it's identifying that it's, it's now non-conforming and subject to all these rules. Well, so I would recommend a few things. One is kind of bifurcate the planning permit and the building permit because those two have two different schedules okay. and requirements. And, and then two is uh, define, you know, what substantial completion means. You know, usually when you have a building permit, the moment construct you dig a hole, it, it's hard to say, oh, you're not substantially completed, but I have a hole on the ground, and this the planning the construction schedule is 36 months, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I they won't get to substantially complete for mm -hmm. a while, and yet they should be able to continue under that permit. So, I think bifurcating sure. the two would be helpful, and then establish usually it's construction convincement, you know, some kind of milestone that's not substantial completion because I think that's a little um, harsh. Sure. On the, on yeah, the I understand stuff. what you're saying. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Any other comments? Okay. You know, I have just a couple of comments. I mean, maybe like kind of continuing the comment that Board Member Ruiz raised because uh, she raises a good point. Um, I thought that once a building permit is issued, and as long as the property owner proceeds, you know, to show active construction at least every six months, that once you start the work, it's kind of fested, isn't it? So even if you're only like a quarter done or whatever, is fested. Is that not the interpretation in this section? Well, it, yeah, I think it's. I think you're you're both identifying that we need to be really careful with the terminology, and we'll, we'll double check that. Okay. Um, I mean, it's it's sort of like, I don't know. I've I've heard it. You know, sticks in the air, or you know, some some vertical construction has started. You know, it's not just a hole in the ground, but you've actually now started. So there's there's case law and and just yeah. best practice, it's, and we'll we'll tune be, this up. It'd be good to you know check the building. Yeah. Building permit laws yeah. to make sure it's consistent that the non-conforming section is not in conflict with yeah. general accepted legal interpretation. Um, my only other comment, which um, this this really has to do with section 30-20.4a, which has to do with have several questions regarding it. And you know, the, it talks about the cumulative improvements up to a certain percentage you're allowed. And um, I guess I have two questions, you know, how, how is that tracked, you know, um, and does it only include items that there's a history of building permits issue where you can't track the valuation? Does it exclude items, improvements where you don't necessarily need a building permit? And I'm thinking things like, you know, you're, you're redoing the flooring in a house or you, substantial painting or items, there's items that don't require building permits that are, or, you know, add up as far as improvements. So part of me is, is kind of what, clarifying what is included, what is not included. And then the second is maybe it's difficult, but because I've seen this in other cities is how do you actually track that? 
You know, I could see a lot of arguments back and forth. Mm -hmm. Good questions. Uh, I mean, it, it's, it's uh, sort of carrying forward an existing section and um, trying to just change a few words, but I, I can see the larger question. So, um, yeah. yeah, we want to yeah. allow some, again, we want to allow some changes to non-conforming buildings without total reconstruction, you know, um, because at that point you could build something else that is conforming instead. Mm -hmm. So that, that's that's what this is trying to get at. Yeah. 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 Anyway, I, you know, I don't have a yeah. specific solution yeah. to it, but I read it and yeah. I just scratched my head and I just think if when the situation comes up, you know, staff, mm -hmm. the burden might be on staff mm -hmm. to make that finding and you're going to need to have some basis for it. Yeah, I mean, I, I will say it, it's it's pretty liberal. It does actually allow up to a hundred percent replacement in in five years. So, um, yeah, maybe, yeah. I don't maybe. I don't know that we're going to be stopping too many projects that way. Yeah, well, that's true too. That's a good point. Um, and I do like um, there's two items that you've included in the non-conforming section, which I think are good. One, which you mentioned, is the process for revocation. I can't. Find it surprising there's not something to deal with that, you know, because that becomes a thorny issue when it comes up. It comes up rarely, but you do need a process for that. So I appreciate that staff identified that as an item. Um, also, there's an attempt, which is also a thorny issue, uh, which I appreciate that staff has come up with a proposed definition of when a use actually expires. That sometimes is problematic, and I thought that what you came up with made sense you know obvious there's always gray area in it but i thought trying to define when that use actually terminates is uh, it is an, a good clarification so those are my comments any other comments from board members okay i think you're up again uh, <laughs> steve so I'm we're on to item uh, 5d which is another study session on zoning code amendments dealing with reasonable accommodation, which deals, I think, also with housing element requirements. So, uh, Steve, presentation. I will keep this even briefer. Um, so yeah, th this is implementing a, a program in the housing element to um, remove the discretionary element of the reasonable accommodation section in our zoning code. Um, you know, there's lots of flexibility actually already built into the zoning code. You can get a use permit, a variance, you can um, get a rezoning. Um, you know, there's, there's um, different way, design review, different ways of getting accommodations um, for uh, primarily handicap accessibility, um, but it actually addresses a whole range of disabilities that need to be accommodated in housing to uh, further fair housing and housing choice. Um, and the uh, removing discretion part is a little tricky because normally, you know, we still normally sort of look at it and like want to weigh our options and make sure that it's not going to be ugly or, um, you know, a safety hazard. Um, but, you know, the law is getting more explicit that these need to be just simply accommodated. And so this section tries to um, shorten the time frame 
that the planning director has to look at an application for an accommodation that's not otherwise available to show that there is some sort of disability that's being accommodated and um, and then just you know sign off basically on a, on a building permit um, and so it short circuits that normal sort of use permit process if somebody wanted to say they had to use the side yard for their ramp instead of the front yard or uh, you know something along those lines uh, we have a case now where there's a a three-story elevator that's being added to a house and you know it's going through design review because there's more to it than that but technically you know we under this provision we could look at the elevator separately and say well if that's a if they can show that this is an accommodation um, then that would be most likely by right under these new rules and so um, there there are still some findings that that are sort of a backstop that if the planning director is asked to approve something and really feels like this is not this is not the right thing under this program uh, it could be denied or conditions could be added and then that sets up an appeal process for that applicant so it's 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 still got sort of a backstop of, of uh, worst case scenario um, but mostly this would uh, establish a by right process. Okay. Um, staff, any public comments on this item? Okay. No, no public, public comments. Okay, thanks. So, board members, questions, comments? Oh, oh. I have one comment. Um, I think it's, I think you did a good job in this section, but I have a problem with. Um, with the part. Oh, oops, uh, board member Curtis. Excuse me, I, I keep forgetting. <laughs> See what a month off will do? Anyway. It wasn't uh, board member Ruiz gonna. Uh, the, the problem that I have is in the removal of the accommodation. Um, if you take the elevator, for example, let's take it as a, as a simpler, um, I, I think in any good neighbor can take something that's, that's ugly and noisy and accommodate another, another neighbor who, who's handicapped and needs it in order to live. But when that need is gone, then that, that amenity should be removed if it's disturbing the, the neighbors or it becomes an eyesore. And I think that, that that particular section should be beefed up so that a neighbor is not stuck with something that nobody needs but just sits there as, as an idle piece of equipment or an idle construct of something that, that design-wise doesn't fit. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, Board Member Ruiz. Thank you. Um, just two quick questions. One, just to confirm, this only applies to housing projects only and not commercial projects, correct? That's correct, it's okay. for fair housing. Thank you. Yeah, I saw that, but I just wanted yeah. to confirm one more time. And then um, secondly, it was a little bit unclear to me, maybe I was reading it too fast, that when an applicant apply for a um, reasonable accommodation, they can only apply for one aspect, for example, putting an elevator in, that does not trigger other type of upgrade, right? It's not gonna trigger, uh, all of a sudden, I have to provide a um, accessible kitchen if there's somebody else that can, they can selectively apply for just one 
of that reasonable accommodation and doesn't re trigger other requirements, all of a sudden making the whole building accessible, correct? No, I think that's more the applicant's determination it's, it's of what they need to do to, you know, the law's written kind of to cover a whole range of situations. Uh, I think it was originally intended to mandate that landlords upgrade their properties to accommodate people with disabilities. Um, but it's morphed into more of a zoning provision as well. And so that's where we're, we're dealing with things that normally wouldn't meet zoning code. So it's the outside of the building normally, something physical that's in a yard where it's not supposed to be or too tall. And so that's really what we're focusing on here, not then the kitchens and bathrooms and other things. So it's not gonna trigger that, but it's up to the applicant on what they want to apply, what they're asking you to review, right? Right, although I, I will say, I mean, the city has its own um, accessibility and visitability program, so those those are separate provisions. Right, but is that gonna trigger that? So for example, if I come in today and say, I want to add, um, a ramp to the front yard, and are you gonna say, well, then now you have to make sure you have a kitchen in the ground floor that's fully accessible, a powder room, and then you also have access to the backyard if you have an a, a, a open space in the ground level. But what I'm saying is I don't need all that, I just wanna be able to get in. So how far, where's the, the boundary of our code? How far does it reach? Does, it, does the applicant have a choice based on their maybe financial constraints at the time, say day one, I just need to get in. Mm -hmm. And then maybe when I'm more financially established, I can do all these other things, but I don't want the city to mandate me to do all these from day one. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know if it's clear, but we should be clear about that. That's a very good question, very good point. Um, I, I mean, I think this is, those provisions are more for multifamily, I believe, but I, but I think you're right that it could still trigger or spiral into something else, so I'll look into that. Yeah, we just wanna be clear from, yeah. from our perspective. This is for this, you know, applicable mm -hmm. to only this scenario, and mm -hmm. the universal ordinance that is not applicable, or, you know, it's at the applicant's discretion or something like that, but I know you'll make it clear. Mm -hmm. okay. Thank you. Okay, okay. That's a good comment. Um, any other comments from board members? Okay, I just had a couple of uh, items, nothing major. Um, and this kind of gets to a board member Curtis's comment. When I was reading the ordinance, there were like two sections that, that, that says number one, that if it's found that this handicap provision or you know accommodation, reasonable accommodation is no longer needed, um, that it needs to be removed. One comment is, you know, that becomes an enforcement issue, so unless someone complains, you know, the staff would, would not necessarily know when that condition occurs. Um, so I don't necessarily have an issue with that because it's just an ordinance and it'll be just by complaint basis. But there's a second provision, and this is, I think, section B3, where it says, that when a property turns over, at least how this, how I'm interpreting it, when a property changes ownership, the and it turns out the new owner doesn't meet this reasonable accommodation, they're supposed to have it removed. Is that correct? 
So part of me is saying when you buy a new home um, and it has this reasonable combination, is there gonna be a disclosure requirement for the new owner to let them know that when they buy this property, they're gonna be required to remove it unless they have a person in a household that needs this provision? I just, just question, it seems like it requires a real estate disclosure requirement. So I just bring that up. It's an interesting point. Um, I, I believe that provision was meant to be when the accommodation is granted, there would either be a condition or there wouldn't be a condition. But I think you're right, then that needs to be yeah, disclosed how, somewhere. Yeah, how does the new owner know, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. um, so I might bring that up. Um, then there's just one comment uh, regarding the findings. You know, I mean, I, I know the reasonable accommodations are, the burdens on really the city to kind of like deny a reasonable accommodation. State regulations require cities to approve them by right and streamline the approval process. So one, one comment is to the finding, take a look at the findings and see if there's, it's not quite clear to me, it seems like it's, the findings are more like, um, here's the finding the city needs to make if they want to deny the reasonable accommodations. And the findings aren't quite stated as clearly as I think it could be. I think the intent is there, but you know, uh, might be stated more straightforward and word in that matter. So I just ask that you take a look at that. Mm -hmm. And then just minor thing, I think F2, there's some extra language in there that I think is just inadvertently included. So those, those are my comments. So any other board member comments? If not, thank you very much. I know this is a lot of work, a lot of, you know, doing zoning code amendments is very <laughs> sometimes tedious, but it's very much appreciated as staff is going through these requirements. Thank you. So let's see, we're moving on to uh, staff communications, item number, agenda item number six. Any staff communications? Actually, I'm not sure why I just moved over here, but uh, <laughs> since my notes were in my hand, um, there are two things. Um, there's the um, upcoming housing forum um, hosted by ABEG and MTC. Um, it's September 29th uh, via Zoom uh, from 10 to 12, and it's uh, about uh, affirmatively furthering for housing. Um, so that could be of interest. Um, and then also just to mention that um, the Oakland Airport uh, released its EIR and we are still preparing a comment letter. Um, and so um, that will be due uh, October 16th. Now they extended the comment period. And so I just wanted to mention that we're still looking at that as well. Do you know whether the Port of Oakland is holding a public hearing on the EIR? Yeah, they've, they've held a couple of um, community meetings, one via Zoom and one in person. Um, I believe that was a couple of weeks ago. They may still be having more considering that they extended the comment period. Okay, all right, thanks. Um, any other, that's it for staff announcements? Yeah. Uh, oh, Board Member Ruiz, question. I have a question. I, I did see the email regarding the housing forum. Is there a cost associated with the event? I don't think so. It's free, yeah. Thank you. yeah. I, I thank registered you. for today, it's free. Which is nice to have, by the way. Um, okay, no further staff communication. 
On to item 6A, which is any uh, report out on recent building and transportation department actions and decisions. Um, no, I think there was an attachment. Is there normally attachment for 6A? Um, or you would have been received by email. I'm not quite sure how that happens, to be honest. But um, there was there think, was a group of design review. As I recall, there's a link that staff mm -hmm. has provided, right? Yeah, there's there's attachment, there are links, there's two decisions that were done, and the question is if any commissioners, any board member would like to call yeah. for review. Yeah. If none, then we just proceed. Okay, so staff, so board members did receive it. It's also just a matter of opportunity for board members to, to call the item up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but yeah, so you can ask. Any comments from board members on those items? Okay, thank you, uh, board member Ruiz. I forgot exactly how it was handled. Uh, so now uh, agenda item 6B, which is just oral reports on any future items uh, that you want to bring to our attention. No, just what I already mentioned. Okay, all right, great. And item seven, board communications. Uh, at this point, members can make a brief announcement of any activities or any factual information or requests of staff or to agendize items for a future item meeting. Oh, oh board member Sahiba. Uh, thank you. Yeah, I just this is more of curiosity than anything else. Um, I've noticed uh, on the intersection of Harbor Bay Parkway and North Loop, there's been some renovation work that's been done. On, uh, I think the building's called Radius. And on the exterior, there are some shipping containers that have been located out there. Um, I think for a future cafe that's supposed to open up soon, uh, as well as adjacent to it, a sort of sports fitness, um, workout zone. I was just curious, is this something that would come in front of the board as far as for planning uh, design review? Because uh, I don't recall ever seeing it, or is it considered a temporary structure that doesn't come under board review? It looks quite permanent to me. <laughs> um, so what, what's, what's the threshold that triggers a design review in that case, uh, specific to this project? Mm -hmm. uh, I was curious if staff knew. I'm not quite sure. I, I do know the project you're speaking of. Do you have? Uh, yeah, that I believe went to the zoning administrator um, probably last year and is just now being constructed. So um, it did go through design review and a use permit, um, I believe, in 2022. So as through design review, did it come in front of this? No, board? it went to the zoning administrator okay. at that level. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I think the threshold is um, if there's substantial community interest anticipated or expressed, then it's elevated to the board. Um, and that also, I guess, is in your weekly report of recent actions taken. So that would have been on that list, most likely, for both design review and zoning. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it was probably on, a, on one of those yeah. that I didn't catch. Um, I will say that just for future reference, I think that it would have been good if it was elevated. I think it's it's an intersection that has, a, I mean, essentially created a blank facade towards North Loop because of the way that the arrangement of the shipping containers are. 
I mean, I appreciate that there's development and activity and, uh, you know, looking forward to the future use being there. Uh, but I will say that it, it would have been good since it's so unique to anything else that's happening around there uh, for it to have um, potentially uh, a design review. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's it. I was, I was just saw that it showed up one day and I was like, okay, this is um, interesting. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. I, I did have a, an item, same area. I was noticing at the, in the minutes, I think July 24th minutes, I think Board Member Curtis raised a question about asking about the status of the hotel proposals that are, that are kind of still out there. Um, I can't recall, did, did staff provide an update to that or is there an update of, available tonight? Yeah, I, uh, one of them is in for a building permit plan check. Um, and so um, I don't remember the names of the two. Um, so I believe the, the hotel that is um, located over by the FDA, uh, that one is in plan check. Um, but um, the other hotels on Harbor Bay Parkway, the other hotels is not. And uh, the hotel that you recently reapproved on Park Street is not in plan check yet. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Any other um, board communication items? Oh, okay. Vice President Cenares. Yeah. I finally got it right yeah. at the end of the meeting. <laughs> yeah, no worries. Um, yeah, thanks. Um, I just wanted to pick up where you started at the beginning of the meeting. I didn't want to um, impose too much on the agenda, but I also want to express my gratitude to President Ruiz for your leadership over the past year. Um, and um, I'm really excited to serve along you. Um, now, Vice President Nam. <laughs> so, thank you. Yeah, yes, thank you all for your leadership. Thank you. Okay, and if not any more board communication, non-agenda public comments. So this is kind of the second opportunity for any members of the public to speak if they didn't get a chance to at the first opportunity. Anyone? Yeah, no, we don't have any. Okay, great. So we're at a, we are now adjourned at 8.28. Thank you. Thank you.